0: Hi, welcome to the Two Nobodies podcast. I'm your host, Rupesh Patel, and I just had the most amazing conversation with Dr. Alexander Flynn from the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. We talked about Canada's housing crisis, something that's in the news, something that we're hearing so much about. Even if you're from the United States or Australia, you're going through similar challenges. And so this is the podcast for you. So much is going on in the news. We don't know what's true. Dr. Flynn and I dig into that. We even dig into the Conservative Party of Canada's Pierre Polyev's Housing Held documentary, particularly his Common Sense Plans to see what actually makes sense. We need about three and a half to six million homes by. 2030. That's an incredible problem to solve, and Dr. Flynn and I go through and talk about how we need this amazing national effort to solve this problem from all levels of government. So if you're interested in this topic, and I hope you are, enjoy this show, and we'll see you at the end of it. Welcome to the Two Nobody's Podcast with my dad. Alexandra, good to see you again. It's been, I don't know how many years it's been, probably around 10 plus years, uh, but it's really nice to see you. Thanks for making time for me today.
1: It's great to see you too. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. I i think the last time we saw each other, it was around, I think it was Nathan Phillips Square or somewhere. We had coffee together and I was an eager postgraduate looking for a job and you're at the city and I just really appreciate you making time for take me time for me that time so um but it's good to see you again and we're talking about housing today
1: yeah we're we're talking about housing it's amazing how circles kind of come back together yeah um, and here we are yeah yeah Yeah, and now you're like
0: your tenured professor like how did you how did you go from the city all the way to here because like when I checked you up on LinkedIn I'm like oh my goodness she's now a tenured professor
1: yeah, you know, I, as I tell my students, it wasn't exactly well planned, um, but I just followed my curiosity. Um, so while I was at the city, I was teaching up at Osgood, and um, as you know, and then I had an opportunity to do a PhD, and so I, I was working at the city and doing the PhD. It was kind of like a hobby, wow. like instead of taking pottery classes, I yeah. <laughs> I did that, but it was a lot harder <laughs> than pottery classes, turned out. Um, and so I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to take a year and just do yeah. my research. And then I was fortunate to land an academic job during that time at U of T and, uh, one thing led to another and here I am at UBC. So yeah. it was very serendipitous.
0: Yeah. And, and was academia something that you always, you always wanted to go back into or?
1: You know, if I'm honest and I think back on what has driven me for most of my life, it, it was. Um, mm. I think I was too worried about jumping into that in my 20s or thinking mm. that that was a viable career path. So I, I was uh, in practice for a while um, and kind of went this route. I think it all worked out because I gained a lot of hands-on skills and I would not trade my my time practicing or working at the city for anything. But, yeah. But yeah, I think it always was something I wanted. Yeah.
0: Is it true? I read, I think I read somewhere that you're from originally from Churchill. Is that true?
1: Yeah. So I moved around a lot as a child okay. and Churchill was one of the places that I lived as a, as a kid. Okay. Um, so there and, and Nunavut, I lived in wow. Um It was before it was Nunavut. Yeah. Um, But those were the two main places, I guess, of my childhood. Um, yeah. Pe- peppered with a, a few other opportunities too.
0: Yeah. And now you're a big city girl. You lived in Toronto. Now you live in, do you live in Vancouver now?
1: I do. Yeah, Yeah. I live in Vancouver. Is that wild for you
0: just to go from like these kind of small, more smaller towns to just living in the the biggest cities in Canada? Or do you ever think about that?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, it's funny. I So I've also, I've lived in bigger cities as well. And I lived in cities when I was a child. And there's definitely differences. But my belief is that, you know we create community where we are and so mm. even in your biggest city there's a little place in there mm. um or certainly that's been my experience in all of the cities that i've lived in um your little village of yeah. you know where you go for coffee and your neighbors and and so i think the the nuts and bolts of what makes community is pretty similar regardless of the size of the place um so I guess that's how I approach my city as well. I think it has, I think living in a town has changed how I live in a city.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I found that when I left Toronto, um, it gave me bigger perspective. Like, I don't know if you felt like there is definitely like a Southern Ontario bubble um, where you just, it seems like that is where yeah everything's happening. And then, you know, even just driving across the country into Alberta, it gives you much more perspective of how vast Canada is and how much more there is going on um you having lived in multiple cities and towns like i imagine you probably have a lot of different perspectives of what is about
1: yeah i in fact that is i like living in toronto but it's that is the one thing that i really appreciate about not being in toronto anymore yeah. is that i think i would have been because there's so much to think about and do yeah. research-wise there whereas now in vancouver you know i i I engage somewhat with issues that are specific to Vancouver, but I would say they're mostly regional at minimum. Yeah. Um, and you see that interdependence of, of place. Um, so for sure there's a, it's a big country. There's a lot going on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell folks about how you like the, the research focus that you have and then this kind of real interest in housing.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in the city as a legal creature Okay. For, for your listeners who, who might not know the nerdy details of it, um, cities are a, a funny construct under Canadian law because they're administrative bodies. They're crafted by the Constitution, by the power of the province under the Constitution. Um, so people may have heard of this idea of creatures of the province, and that's mm-hmm. where that comes from. Um, but of course, for many of us, and just as we're talking about it now, municipalities are very much governments. Um, They handle huge issues and budgets, and they represent the people who are living within their boundaries. And so they have this dual role of government and administrative body, and it creates lots of interesting legal phenomenon, which is what I'm really interested in. Mm. Um, So that's the, I guess, the big picture of what fascinates me, Um, something I'll never in my whole career be able to fully grasp, I think, but something that I keep working towards. And these days, how that manifests itself is in two specific areas. So one is, what is the constitutional power of cities? So when mayor or Premier Ford introduces strong mayor power mm-hmm. or otherwise tries to change what municipalities are, what they're able to do, what does that mean from a legal perspective? Right. Does that meet the standards of the constitution? So that's one kind of area. And then the other area that I'm really interested in is housing um, and housing in its full spectrum. So what has led us to the housing crisis that we're in, what role local governments play, what role they can play, Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the crisis of homelessness. So what happens when we don't have adequate housing for those who need it? And then again, what is the municipal response? So I would say the housing and homelessness piece takes up the vast majority of the time, but it's really within this backdrop of what are cities and what are cities doing.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit first before we get into housing, because increasingly, like you said, and you gave the Ford government example, you see provinces, um, it seems like they're encroaching more on uh, things that naturally would fall within cities, or maybe stripping some of their powers, or, you know, in toronto cutting the size of council like how many weeks before an election like it was it was wild um but then like remember i'm sure you know but hazel mccallion's famous quote like uh the the federal government has uh has all the money the uh, provinces have all the power and the cities have all the problems right and it's so true and um but yet, like the the provinces uh, don't necessarily give as much autonomy or they don't always provide all the right funding to to, to cities. Um, but then now you see also the federal government trying to have like agreements with the cities and the provinces are kind of like, whoa, 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 hold up a second, right? It's, uh, it's an interesting thing because the cities are trying to deal with some of these problems, like whether it be even on the climate side in face of governments who are not trying to do as much, but cities want to do things. And. I don't know. It's just an interesting, interesting time. What are your, what are your thoughts about like cities trying to get more power and, and maybe more funding and, and provinces not living up to it? Or, um, or do you think the provinces are doing a good job at sort of managing things?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we have, um, we have a constitution that doesn't reflect the reality of governance in Canada. Hmm. Um. You know, it so happens that we have a constitution that is very hard to change compared to any international constitution. Mm. And we have, quite rightly, politicians from across the board that are terrified of opening up the constitution because of how problematic and difficult that is. And so what we're left with is this outdated laundry list of powers that, first of all, doesn't include everything like housing. Mm -hmm. It's not named Mm -hmm. in, in our constitution. Um, But in addition, an agreement almost between us, between our governments, that really doesn't match how we actually govern. And, you know, on one hand, whatever, you know, we can sort of figure it out pragmatically through agreements and other things. But when it comes to something like housing, where we should all be at the table, all governments should be at the table collaborating and trying to figure out how to get us out of this mess Instead, we have different parties, you know, pointing fingers at each other and asserting power. Mm. And and it's a shame. I, I just think it's a mm. waste of energy when, you know, when really what we should be doing is collaborating. Um, so what do I think about that? I guess in a perfect world, I would prefer to have a constitution that we could revisit mm. and it could be innovative. Um we have lots of examples, especially from the global south, of regions that are reclaiming the constitution as a tool to bring a country together and to recraft the agreements that citizens have with government and that governments have with one another. Right. I think I think that would be ideal, but you know, again, tricky to do. Um so which in, which, in- which
0: premiers are gonna give up power in the constitutional conversation to the cities, right? Like, because yeah. I don't, I don't think cities would be invited to the table on a constitutional conversation. I would think, at least historically, they haven't, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've ha- we have some real, um, I don't know, like David Goliath stories when it comes to the Constitution. Like, for mm-hmm. example, the, you know, the Constitution train where indigenous leaders and. In, in the late seventies and mm-hmm. early eighties, insisted at on being at the table, and they were, and that's thus true. the birth yeah. of Section Thirty Five. So yeah, that's true. I think I think there is hope, um, but I think that's not where we're at in our current governance moment. And mm-hmm. so, instead, it's a question of leadership. Um, mm-hmm. Where are we finding leadership around issues like housing? And there are bright lights of that, like. British Columbia, for example, Premier Eby and his government have stepped up and they're keen to step up. That's amazing.
0: Mm. I
1: think the federal government, I mean, fingers crossed, but they've committed to stepping up. They've introduced um, the National Housing Strategy Act. That's pretty great. Mm. Um, The the question is, are we going to have our governments collaborate or are they going to interfere with one another because of their assertions of power. Right. Um, it's it's not an ideal situation for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's get into let's get into housing then. Like, all right. I, I, th- I think I think you know. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it. It's hard to know what to believe. Um, in your eyes, like, I mean, you already said a little bit that it's a mess. But when you define the, this sort of housing crisis, like, how do you see it? How do you define what this housing crisis really is about?
1: So I define it in terms of how many people are without the housing that they can afford. Okay. Um, and so to me that's a data question. So I have a an amazing team here at UBC that is looking at that and has looked at that exact question, quantifying based on the data that we have, and the data is poor, but based on the data we have, what is the housing need across the country? So your listeners can go on heart.ubc.ca, they can input their municipality and they can see how many people based on five quintiles don't have the housing they need okay. and we can do that for across the country and so based on that we see that there are over six million homes that are needed in this wow. country and to me that is the crisis um, we have we have people who either don't have a home that they can live in and satisfy their other needs therefore they're going into debt or they're stressed or they're overcrowded um, or they're in living situations that are unsuitable or unsafe Mm -hmm. or at the very worst we have people who are unhoused who are living rough or who are sleeping on other people's sofas um that is the crisis that we are in
0: yeah and, and the affordability part of it too, right? And I guess that's part of the, the first group that you kind of character like, I would imagine you're including renters, for instance, who want a home, but they just can't afford to get one these days. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we are, we are, we meet a lot of the, you know, like top of the list for standard of living, um, or quality of life, you know, for those of us who are able to afford the lives that we have. Mm-hmm. We also are at the top of the list for unaffordability when it comes to housing.
0: Yeah. And we're not, uh, my understanding is there are some other jurisdictions around the world that are experiencing similar challenges. Like I think Australia is one of them too, that's experiencing similar kind of um, drivers for why we're experiencing this. Even in the United States, I'm hearing that affordability of housing is is, uh, is pretty stretched right now. Um, is Canada unique, I guess, in any way, or are, are there other jurisdictions that are facing very, very similar challenges?
1: Yeah, there are. I, you know, it's, it, as you said, a lot of, um, a lot of countries in the global no- north, frankly, so us, the US, Australia, New Zealand, um, unprecedented levels of um, housing unaffordability, the UK, um, a lot of areas where there's a certain idea of what kind of housing and communities we should have. So mm. single family homes, yeah. not very dense, um, the American dream type mm. mythology yeah. around what housing looks like. Right, Those are the areas where we're finding particular issues.
0: That's what I was going to ask is, are there any sort of... Um, uh, are there any connecting factors between some of those jurisdictions that uh, you see that are not just exclusive to something that's more domestic in nature for Canada? Like like you said, maybe those countries share this kind of idea of what housing looks like, but are there any other global factors that um, influence all influence us all when it comes to housing?
1: I think the degree of social housing and and to what extent social housing is acceptable as a form of middle class housing mm. so in countries like Austria for example um, social housing is completely acceptable to live in um, or in in Germany for example renting your whole lives is totally fine it's mm. not seen as a as a status marker of right. you not having grown up um, whereas a lot of these countries home ownership is really the gold standard for what you're supposed to attain mm. um, and actually what is subsidized by government ultimately. So it's a yeah. government choice to to provide that notion of what housing should look like. I think that's part of it. Um, the degree of congregate living, um, you know, the, the single family as opposed to living with um, multi-generation homes. Um, that's another common feature that exists across these areas, which yeah. has its own, um, not just challenges in terms of affordability and housing, but also in terms of community and belonging. Um, so that's another, I think, thread that I can see.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you say social housing, you mean like where it's kind of government funded or subsidized or that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, government owned and operated. Yeah, uh, I guess would be on its most sort of extreme level where the government itself has an agency that oversees those houses, that housing stock, um, or some form of direct housing subsidies that are that are given and essentially make it into a, a public uh, service that government provides. But it might be more complicated from an administrative perspective.
0: Do you do you think we need to have a shift in sort of attitudes towards housing? Like we need to um, think of housing differently in this country? I do. Yeah, I
1: do think we should. I do think we should. I think we should be thinking of um, dispelling that single family home Mythology. I do. I think it'll make us, I actually think it'll make us happier Mm. to have denser communities. Um, I think it'll, it'll free open those boundaries and walls and open us up to our neighbors. So, and we have some examples of that. Like, for example, in Quebec, that kind of densification has always been in place, like kind of low density. So, three to four story is the norm, and it works very well.
0: How do you think that's landing with the next generation of homeowners that it's like, okay, maybe they had this ideal placed in their heads. They have potentially parents who are saying like, um, telling them or inspiring them to think about homeownership as that single family home. But now the reality perhaps is that, uh, one, maybe that's not as attainable, but two you may have to change their attitudes towards that. Like, do you think that's, is that landing well with this next generation of homeowners?
1: I mean, I haven't seen any stats or polls. As you can tell, I'm very data-focused. But um, just anecdotally, I would say that younger people are already coping with the realities of this difficult housing market in very innovative ways. Um, So, for example, there are like one of the people that works on my team, for example, they live in a home, a large house, but it's with six unrelated people who Live communally, essentially. Um, mm. And that's, and it's a choice. They make that choice. There are now housing forms, legal forms that comply with that idea. So uh, almost like co ops that are being created with that model in mind. Um, there's, you know, queer families who have for a long time lived um, in more congregate settings and created different ideas about what family looks like and what it means. We have many communities across the country that live multi generationally Mm -hmm. and change the form of their housing to meet that. So, for example, taking what on the outside might look like a single family home, but inside are multiple um, semi separate units that different parts of the family live in. Um, I think youth are growing up with that reality as well. Um, I think it's different from. I mean, I was fortunate to grow up in areas of the country where living multi-generationally was very normal. And um, I think many other people have grown up like that too, Mm -hmm. even if it isn't the mythology that the government sort of states about single family ownership. Mm -hmm. Um, Young people are smart. Um, You know, I'm not, I guess I'm not very worried about that in short.
0: Yeah, um, that's yeah i i that, make, that makes a lot of sense i know for myself i'll speak personally is that when we bought our home here in edmonton the first thing i looked at was the yard because i grew up with a big yard and i was just like oh i wanted something like that um so i i wonder about how that carries forward for for other people and i also wonder about like newcomers to this country of um are they are they looking are they Assuming or are they looking for something that's different from the situation that they came out of, right? Um, because as you say, in other parts of the world, you're living in denser communities, you're living in multi-generational homes. Um, and are they coming here hoping that maybe there's something different? Maybe they have a lot more space and to be able to operate. So um, but yeah, I have no no data on that, but I just wanted your thoughts on that too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the question is around options and choice. So you know, I don't think we're going to move into a situation, nor should we, where there's only one form of housing. You know, mm. that it's just uh, large apartment buildings or just right. one type. But the kind of housing stock that we need that's going to make sure that people are housed in places that they can afford—that's where the gap is, and mm. it is this kind of more dense um, housing. Some of it, you know, I think now we sort of think of it as entry level homes. You buy a townhouse or condo, and then you kind of work your way up to having a single family home. Um, Maybe that's the reality for some people. It will serve as that step ladder, you know, onto other forms of housing. But for many people, that is the end goal. It's it, that will be where they, they end up staying. And that's the housing stock that I think governments are now sort of realizing needs to be in place. That's why zoning bylaws and other things are shifting to enable more communities to have it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said 6 million homes is something that we need in Canada. Is there, is there a a certain timeline for that when we need it by, like I've heard by like 2030 or something like that is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's in 2030 and there's different numbers by the way, of course, there's different numbers. Some people say 10 million. Some people say, you know, the government has a different amount, um, but the data that we've produced shows shows the 6 million.
0: Yeah, I've seen the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation say around 3.5 million. It's kind of a lower place, but still a, a huge amount. Like how the heck did we get here where there's such a undersupply and such a high demand? Like I know it's a complex question, but like for you, what are the things that stand out for how we got here?
1: Yeah, I think this is really about political choice. Okay. Um, you know, we used to have much more intervention from the federal government in housing. Mm. Um, and they, in the nineties, because of wanting to deal with, uh, debt and deficit backed away from directly overseeing housing. So social housing was delegated or, or, or given to the provinces. And in turn that was downloaded to some municipalities. And so, um, that's one reason we just had the federal leadership piece of it go. Um, p- part of it is, um, is the way that we've subsidized single-family homes through grants and tax breaks. Mm. I have a scholar friend from the U.S. who says, "You know, we put a lot in the house. Like, the house is not just the place we live, but it's also our our uh, our retirement strategy. It's how we make sure our kids can go to schools that mm. we want them to go to. It's our it's a
0: vehicle stat- for everything, right? Yeah. It's our
1: vehicle for everything, and yeah, that's a political yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah." yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, you said sorry. You said the in the '90s, so I imagine during the the Chrétien time. Um, so yeah. before before that, um, the federal government was was really actively involved in housing. Like, what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so for about three decades, so of post uh, World War II, um, again another crisis time of of housing, the federal government stepped up and and basically built and operated social housing. Okay. Um, and so there were you know communities of that were created essentially that, um, that housed people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not more, not more sophisticated than that. There was just more money and more housing. And then obviously that's expensive to do. And so the federal government, um, in the chrétien years through Paul Martin's, uh, budgets decided to, uh, get out of the business of housing and, and, and determined that it was a provincial role and not a federal one.
0: Okay, so because uh, in BC, I think you guys have BC Housing, right? Is that yes? Is that kind of deal with sort of non-provide non-market kind of housing solutions there? That's right. Okay, not does every not every province has that, right? I don't think. No,
1: no. In some places, like in Ontario, for example, it's it's really been a, seen as now a municipal role.
0: Yeah. So okay, so the federal government kind of uh, absolves a responsibility from that. Then what is that? What is that? start to do over time in terms of just like the supply of housing or um, just kind of contributing to the situation we have now?
1: Yeah. So it, it suggests that there's a, I mean, because many provinces assumed the same position that it, it wasn't the role of government to, you know, own and operate housing for those, especially those who are more vulnerable. What it meant is that there needed to be a, a market role for this, that the market would need to step in, sometimes with subsidies, sometimes with restrictions. Um, for example, having a certain number of units that were identified for um, for lower income or middle class uh, folks. Um, but essentially, the the idea was the market will be able to deal with this issue. And that's mm. where we see the gaps. They, they aren't. Um, there are a considerable number of individuals who just simply cannot afford market housing. Um, and so the question is, what do we do about that? Um, and and because there isn't the supply that's being created, we now don't have enough supply to sort uh, all of those who need housing. So that's one piece of it. The mm-hmm. other piece is our population has grown. Um, so we have more people who are coming to Canada, which we need. We need that from a from a um, labor
2: you know immigration,
1: or, yeah, 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 we also have tremendous labor needs here, mm-hmm. um, but we don't have the housing to to provide to people, and so you know I'm I'm reticent to say that immigration, especially these days, is the cause of the housing crisis because it is not. This is a decades in the making mm. issue, um, but we're definitely stretched in terms of the housing supply that we have and the ability to house those who need it at the rates that they can live
0: in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you think that there is a place for, like, is it too back? Is it too late now to, to for the federal government to go back and try to get into non-market housing? Um, Is there any sort of, you know, quote unquote wartime kind of level of effort that we could put to this problem or yeah. Any thoughts on that? Because I've heard some, I've heard, you know, recently people kind of, entertaining that idea, I guess.
1: I think that there's absolutely and should be, this is the moment to change how we do things. It is. Okay. I mean, yeah. we really do have a crisis of leadership in this area. Um, the only government that can really do it across the board is the federal government. Mm. And and they're reticent. Um, they don't have to do it by directly building and operating housing as they did post-World War II. They can do it through funding. They can do it in a similar model that we've created. Healthcare, healthcare is another um, line item that was not in our constitution that we figured out a national response to. I think we are at that level of crisis, Um, and again, there are are ways that we can ensure cooperation with principles around uh, a right to housing or a need for housing, Mm -hmm. Um, and and we should they should. Hmm. So yes, I think I think this is a fixable problem. I don't think we're too far down any road that we can't re-steer the ship.
0: I wonder why the federal government, if, if that would like, seem probably very obvious to folks then, I, I guess, in, in the, in the, uh, those who are working in the federal government, I guess. Why, why wouldn't they be responding in that way then?
1: To be honest, I think they are. Um, okay. so, so for the housing projects that I'm involved in. We have a lot of conversations with different federal um, leaders, um, both political and at the staff level. And mm-hmm. I think there is a real momentum to try to figure out how to navigate, constitutionally speaking, the role of the government, the federal mm-hmm. government, and all of this. I think that's one piece of it. I think the other is what's going to work. Um, there has been a lot of money that's been put towards subsidies. A lot of the subsidies have gone to um, the market ideology around dealing with the issue and so ensuring that we're that they're spending money or directing money to the right causes i think is another preoccupation so i do think there is an interest and a recognition um and we're just in that moment of sort of seeing how it's going to pan out assuming that the federal government does say at the end of the day, let's, let's actually do this and assuming that they have a mandate to do it ultimately, because there will be, there will be an election.
0: Is there, is there, if the federal government is putting money towards this, does the market side have the capacity to be able to deliver on this or, and are there non-market housing players that can also get involved? Like, yeah. Is that an issue right now?
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. So the the non-market providers, I think that's a real opportunity for um, for change. So these are the, um, the, the bodies that are essentially building housing for those who are middle class, lower middle class, who can't afford market level housing, and, mm-hmm. and in housing forms like land trusts and other models that keeps it affordable for the long term. Um, I think there's huge potential there, and we see in a province like British Columbia, there has been more direction of funding right. for those those players um, and through BC housing. So that's the, there's a lot of uh, you know great examples in the way that that BC is doing it. The city of Toronto is also calling for more housing through nonprofit uh, vehicles. But that doesn't mean there isn't a role for for for-profit housing mm. developers. Of course, there is, and there will be people who can afford market housing and will remain in market housing. You know, a significant number of people. I don't think we're in it, certainly in the projects that I'm involved in. We're just not as worried about those who are um, already able to access market housing. It's those who are doing it but really can't afford it, and then those who would like to but can't, and then those who just that's not even on their radar. They're just, they're not going to be able to, to do that based on various factors.
0: Are you worried, concerned at all that if there is more non-market housing participation, how it affects um, the for-profit sector? Cause the real estate sector um, is huge. It's a, a huge contributor yeah. to our economy. So many Canadians are a part of it. Um, any concerns from that perspective?
1: I mean, the, um, You know, in addition to our crisis of of housing, we also have an unprecedented increase in the cost of supply and labor with, you know, something like 20% of Canadian construction workers due to retire, which has led to construction being very expensive. So I actually think that's the area we want to be focusing on. It's Mm. an area of potential growth. Um, Yeah, I would say, you know, you don't want to minimize the voices and concerns of, of, of anybody, given the state of our economy. But when it comes to people just not having a place to live, I think that really needs to be our focus. That takes
0: precedence. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, cause I, I wonder from people who are like, yeah, you know, housing is so important, but as long as it doesn't erode my property prices, you know, or my real estate investment portfolio, you know, it's, I that's you know, it's a real, it's a realist, it's a realistic part of the conversation. But to your point, when people are not, are facing situations where they're unhoused, like that definitely takes precedence.
1: I think that has dominated the discussion of housing for too yeah. long. Yeah. And, um, you know listen I'm fortunate enough to to own a house so I get it but um, I'm in a better position to lose some money on the value of my house than somebody who's at risk of of losing their rental property and and falling into homelessness I think it's just where are we putting our priorities right now yeah and I think that's what has to take take precedent
0: so federal government you said it has the biggest opportunity and role to play um, do you think the provinces kind of work with the feds on, 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 or are they working with the feds on the housing side or what are you seeing as far as challenges there?
1: Yeah. I mean, so of, we, we kind of like the, you know, the good guy, bad guy story. Um, not you, but I mean, in general, just, it's a trope that, Mm. you know, someone's doing something wrong or whatever behind the scenes. Provinces, federal government, municipalities have been working together on the back end for a long time, trying to figure things out. Um, you know, when I worked at the City of Toronto, one of my areas was housing. Um, you know, Toronto is a municipality, but it's it's a big one, right? It's the fourth largest government in Canada, and we had ongoing discussions with provinces and the federal government all the time about how to figure things out within the legal and policy constraints that we were in. These discussions are are going on. There are very uh, skilled and talented people that, that are working and have worked for decades and years on these issues within government. We don't see that. It's not a story that's told all the time. Mm. I think that kind of infrastructure, that infrastructure of experience and of um, really trying to fit square pegs and round holes for a long time needs to be recognized too. So these intergovernmental conversations have existed. We just don't they're just not laid out in a systematic way. Mm. Um, there's not a sophistication around the the way that these tri-level government tables operate. I think that's in my view that should be the priority. We're not going to open up the Constitution so in the absence of that, how do we create real dialogue amongst governments to come to the table and figure out how to work together? Um, the City of Toronto is taking a leadership role of, on that with its New Deal now, just just uh, you know unveiled I guess a few months ago. I think that can serve as a, as a standard for how it can operate in different parts of the country. We have premiers like, for example, Premier EB in, in British Columbia, um, Premier Wabkanu in in Manitoba who are very determined and open to working with all governments to figure this out. Um, I think this is a moment to create that infrastructure, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we have, you know, officials, civil servants who've been working at this for a long time, who know a lot, you know, um, let's look to that leadership too, to see how we can, how we can create that infrastructure.
0: I appreciate that, Alexandra. And yeah, I think that, uh, I think the public doesn't hear enough about these kind of conversations that are happening, happening across government, uh, you know, people are quick to to blame different parties. Maybe I'm tainted because of the province I live in and there's always so much fighting that's happening between our premier and the federal government. Uh, so maybe I'm just a bit uh, jaded and, and lost, lose a little bit of perspective sometimes. But yeah, there's definitely those conversations are are happening. And the agreement they talked about in Toronto, that's the one where um, the province took on some of the major um highways right
1: exactly yeah, 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 and the feds have agreed to come to the table on that, so yeah. I mean that's I could tell you that the city of Toronto has been pushing for that kind of intergovernmental collaboration for ages it has had it in certain areas like immigration in the past, so normalizing those relationships um is a great step forward, and it goes to what one of the questions that you asked before about. You know what happens when the province is asserting its, you know, its stick, mm. its constitutional stick. So, if it puts down its stick, and the federal government's a little more humble, um, and the and the cities are allowed to shine a little bit more on their knowledge and and realities on the ground of what what needs to happen, I think that's where there's real potential.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but the finger pointing during crises just drives me crazy. Like. We're right now, we just got these uh, huge alerts in Alberta about uh, power because uh, it's extreme cold weather and the electric system operators like, hey, there's a grid alert. And you go on Twitter or now X and, and you read through the comments and everyone's just, you know, the premier's finger pointing at the feds talking about their clean electricity regulations. And, and on the other side, they're blame, blaming the former premier, Notley, about what's going, what happened in her time. It's just it's pathetic, right? And this is why people have low trust in government. Is that the politicians themselves are, are finger pointing rather than actually, you know, communicating calm and and certainty and you know that sort of thing? Totally. Yeah. It yeah
1: it's yeah, it's, in, it's infuriating because we know that the attention could be put so much better elsewhere. So why are we doing it? Yeah,
0: for sure um speaking of uh political finger pointing there was a a pretty well uh i guess known little mini doc that the conservative party of canada released um i saw it it was actually i'm curious about your general thoughts on it i mean it seems like a really good communication tool but um i do want to play a clip from it but just general thoughts on if you if you'd seen it about uh, that little mini doc
1: listen i think it's brilliant um i think that uh uh, you know, Paliev has tapped into um, a dire, troubling anxiety that Canadians across the country feel, hmm. and and it's correct. I mean, people are struggling to afford their daily lives. The cost of housing has skyrocketed. People have mortgages they can't pay. Um, it's it's very troubling for for people who are just really trying to raise their kids and live their lives. So yeah. I I admire the fact that a pretty um intelligent, um, long, you know, like there's not an assumption that these two minute clips of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of mean uh, you know, whatever dirt throwing are gonna be right. satisfied. Right. Like I think that's that's excellent. Okay. I don't agree with the conclusion. <laughs> I don't agree with all the data, but the manner and form of it, I hats off.
0: He kind of like systematically breaks down the problem in a way that's very easy to understand for people and, you know, throw some mud pies here or there. But for the most part, you know, you're right. I think he kind of gets to what people are feeling about. Um, the, the clip I want to bring up is um, where he kind of talks about his common sense plan and it's really centered around municipalities. Uh, so let me just bring that up and uh, watch together and see what your reaction is here
2: incentivized good behavior rather than reinforcing the bad here's how we can the federal government spends about 4.5 billion dollars on direct and continuous municipal infrastructure transfers big city politicians care about getting that money more than anything else they'll only permit more home building faster if their federal money depends on it my common sense plan one Require big cities to complete 15% more home building per year as a condition of getting federal infrastructure money. Two, give building bonuses to cities that exceed the 15% target. Dollars should be based on housing completions, not promises. Three, require federally funded transit stations be permitted for high density apartments all around it and withhold federal transit grants until the apartments are built and occupied. Four, sell off 15% of federal buildings and thousands of acres of surplus federal land suitable for housing. Instead,
0: Let me just go back to the list there. So yeah, I don't know. Um, anything stand out from here? Like th- what do you think about these, these recommendations here?
1: Yeah. So some of them already are in place. So there already is, um, you know, Funding that's that's um, earmarked earmarked for um, you know achieving a certain number of units being built. So I think that's that's in some in some ways it's kind of like repeating what's already been stated. Mm. Um, I think that um, the piece about land is a is a concern because we have lots of examples, unfortunately, of where public lands have been sold that previously occupied public housing and the results that we hope to see in terms of public housing being built or more housing being built hasn't happened. The land has stood vacant. Mm. Um, So we have a lot of examples of that, for example, here in Vancouver, unfortunately. So I don't think that's a good idea. I think the public, the public, government should hang on to their land and use other forms of tenure to construct housing, namely through long-term leases.
0: Could you, could you, you, if you sold off that land, but then um, I don't know, zoned it in a way that was dedicated for housing, like, could that be an opportunity maybe?
1: I mean, this is where we come back to who's holding it. So is it a Mm. nonprofit body are we are we going to keep it affordable for the long term basically or will will it ultimately be turned into a a form of market housing right um that's where we have these cautionary tales in in british columbia that i don't think we want to be replicating Mm. um so you know i think the bottom line is is it going to remain uh, housing that's affordable or not and what vehicle are we using for that but selling it off doesn't seem like the right call. Um, We have a bit too much of that already. This is land that is held in our collectivity and can be used to help address this issue. And then other ideas around uh, transit stations and high density, that's being done um, in many jurisdictions. So what do I think? I guess I think, um, yes, tying, Funding to conditions is good. It's done already, and it should continue. Um, the idea of austerity type approaches don't, in the long term, trickle down to the people who really need it. Um, so believing that the market is going to solve this problem isn't isn't hasn't borne out in history, and I don't think should be attempted now. Yeah. So I guess that's what I think about the measures. I um, yeah. I hope that answers the question.
0: No, I think it does for sure. It sounds like so. Some of these things are are definitely happening. Um, you know, in, in principle, the selling the, or the the in theory, the thought of selling off federal land seems appealing, but it it kind of has historically fallen short. It sounds like on that front. Um, yes, does that sort of def- capture things? Yeah.
1: It has definitely fallen short. Yeah. And um I, I like the idea of using public lands a lot. Yeah. Um it's another sort of pillar of what we're doing here at UBC in terms of research. Um I like that, you know, it's getting more attention, but the idea of selling it to for profit um developers with the belief that it will remain affordable is unfortunately not borne by history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you heard the federal government uh, is, uh, it was in the news, I think yesterday or the the day before on capping international students. Uh, And uh, because of, you know, it's the situation that they're facing, but also potentially the pressures it puts on on housing. Um, I know we talked earlier about, you know, there is a lot of focus around immigration and how that's contributing. But really, the problem has stemmed from decades past um in general though when you think about do you think there is a role and is, it is worth looking at um international students and newcomers and immigration levels in general right now or because there is a conversation I mean, about like you know if you, you are going to bring people we should have the housing in in place um uh, but at the same time uh you know we also need immigration for um for for many reasons and also even to to support newcomers if they're leaving from You know, conflicting situations at home or whatever it might be. So,
1: I mean, we are a country that is built on immigration, as you know, as we've all heard multiple times uh, for good reason. And so, um, I think finger pointing um, to uh, newcomers as the cause of housing woes is just simply untrue and dangerous. Um, And at the same time, we don't want people to be at risk. You know, I I teach in a university and I see the effects of having. Mm students who are poorly housed and what that does to them and there's a role for universities to play Um, university lands are another area where we we should expect more housing to be provided so i would rather that kind of conversation of how do we house the people who are coming um and make sure that they have the opportunities to flourish in canada um And, and I think that's where we need to keep the conversation. We need, we need newcomers. And so how are we going to house them adequately?
0: Yeah. Do you know about, um, universities taking on more international students? Uh, is that, is that true? And is that partly in response to, um, them not getting adequate funding, uh, from, from different levels of government? Is that, do you know anything about that?
1: It's a bit outside my area, you know, so I only know Mm. what I've, what I've heard, but yeah. Uh, that is I think I was reading you know a few articles in the past weeks whether, that are highlighting this this new announcement by the federal government and and that seems to be what's what people are reporting that the number of international students is going up and, and at the same time, they're not guaranteed or even um, given in some cases opportunities to stay in Canada afterwards. so it's really yeah. a, a cash grab on on the part of universities. Um, again, it's not my area, so I don't have any data on yeah. it or what have you, but it does seem like that does happen, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Cause I'm starting to see some articles pop up about people leaving now the country because of what they were hoping for, but isn't, they're not achieving, um, what they wanted and they're not finding their housing situation and they're not finding a better life. Like that's really sad, right? It is
1: sad. It's horrible. Yeah. It yeah. shouldn't happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is what is something that's kind of in the mainstream, I guess, news or dialogue that just bothers you when it comes to like, this is not true or we need to inform Canadians better on this on this problem. Is there anything that sort of stands out that you just kind of want to square the truth on?
1: I mean, so I, I do, a, we haven't talked about it much, but I do a, a lot of work on homelessness. So street homelessness, people living, yeah. people living in encampments. And um, obviously there's a lot of, um conversation around the chaos these people purportedly cause or that there's too many people who are homeless and they're violent and they're you know destroying cities like that kind of uh conversation that is very troubling to me so Mm. I guess one thing to square up is linking homelessness to the housing crisis and just emphasizing that this is this is the outcome when you don't have adequate housing for people who need it. Mm. Um, these are most at-risk, vulnerable people who are, who are ending up on the streets because they don't have other places to live. And it is not what they want. They don't want to be on the streets. Um, they don't want to be living in parks. They don't want to be living as they are. Mm. And there, again, are many examples of countries that have much better ways of, in, of, of housing people who are so vulnerable. I remember once um, interviewing uh, somebody who was responsible for this very vulnerable population and, and saying, you know, it's not easy. You know, these folks, they have a lot of needs. They might have addiction issues, the mm-hmm. mental health issues. Um, it's not easy to house them, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't. Um, that's that's what we should be doing as a society that has something like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees um, certain fundamental rights. And it uh, it's very troubling to have so much anger directed at people who are suffering so much. Um, So that is, I guess, one thing that I'd like to emphasize.
0: I'm sure there's some common ground we can find on both sides of the political spectrum on this, right? On one side, people are really upset about seeing these encampments in cities. So then if we all feel, if there are people who feel that way, um, then we can all make this kind of effort towards housing those folks, right? And and putting some sort of national effort towards this, right? Like there's got to be some common ground on, on this issue that we can find.
1: Absolutely. I, I think so. I think, yeah. you, I think people, um, you know, like if you speak to people about what's actually happening, most of the time you can find common ground. Like uh, earlier this week, I was on a radio show and about a decampment that's taking place. And I got an email from somebody, a resident in the area who said, you know, listen, I'd love to talk. We, you know, there's a homeowners association. We used to be very sympathetic towards unhoused people, but we've just gotten really frustrated and you know we'd love to talk i mean i love that like yeah. let's just come to the table these are these are obviously interested people who live in the neighborhood that have a a desire to find a common ground as well so why aren't we encouraging that kind of all hands on deck let's move forward together um, divisive politics right now i mean maybe anytime but right now <laughs> it just doesn't it's not doesn't either. make you feel good no, it, it's no. it's not the right it's not the right vibe yeah as yeah. my teenager would say yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. um i uh, know somebody uh, a neighbor of mine who's a, a firefighter um here in edmonton and um he was working in the downtown core and he said most of his calls are at encampments and it's because of people just trying to stay warm But, uh, you know, unfortunately it's kind of unsafe, right. And so they're having to deal with a lot of those calls of, of just having, trying to have these tough conversations, right. Firefighters who, um, you know, maybe they get some training in this, but they're having to have tough conversations with people. But like, unfortunately we can't have you have that, have you, you know, have that fire in your tent because it's going to create a really unsafe situation, but these people have no choice, right? Like it's just, it's, yeah pathetic right you have firefighters who sh- shouldn't be having to deal with these kind of calls right and should be focused on what they're really supposed to be doing but that's he was saying that was like 90 percent of their calls right yeah was on yeah. was on uh was folks you know trying to stay warm in these unsafe situations or you know on the drug overdose side he said it was a huge huge thing so
1: yeah yeah totally i mean it's uh I think, you know, there are examples of municipalities now with encampments who are saying, okay, we know people want to stay warm and need to stay warm, especially in a place like Edmonton or here right now, frankly, in Vancouver. (laughs) Um, And we know that um, we have these bylaws that are restrictive and codes that don't allow it. Um, So what do we do? What are creative solutions around this And, and are figuring it out? So like the city of London, I mean, places you would wouldn't have previously looked to for uh, necessarily best practices. Um, it's leadership, right? Where you have leadership that's saying, "Let's do it differently. Let's talk to each other and figure it out." You can come to better situations amidst uh, an overarching crisis that's going to take some time to solve.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is there a jurisdiction out there, like um, uh, another country that is could be a comparative model for Canada that's kind of doing it right?
1: Yeah, so on the homelessness side, I think Finland is mm. the gold standard. And you know what they did? It was two things. So number 1, they said, "We have to fix this. This is going yeah. in the wrong direction, just like us, right? This is encampments are increasing, homelessness is rising. We need to curb this." So, leadership, number 1. And number 2, they said, "We need to figure out and 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 measure the problem." And mm. so, there's really good data around around homelessness in Finland. Every municipality counts um, how many people are unhoused. We don't do that in Canada. So we actually, we're at like chapter one of the book, right? Chapter one, paragraph one. Like we don't even know the magnitude of the problem. Okay. And how, so how can we solve it if we yeah. don't know? Um, I don't think this is rocket science to count this stuff um, and figure out and then hold ourselves and our leaders accountable for fixing it. Um, so I think that's a great model for for homelessness that we should be looking to. And in fact, this coming week, uh, maybe too late for your listeners, but it'll be available on on video. There's a delegation coming from Finland to give advice to the federal government on how to address homelessness here.
0: Yeah. I think this is a great great way to sort of maybe uh, move to the, my final two questions, if that's okay with you. But um, in short, I guess, what do you want people to take away from from this conversation?
1: I think number one that it's fixable. Um, You know, we can sometimes throw up our hands in despair and say, like, "Well, you know, that's it. You know, it's a crisis, and that's the end of it." And, and instead, say to ourselves, "We can fix this, and we, and we will fix it. We have to fix it. Um, We, it matters too much." Um, And then to hold our leaders accountable. You know, if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that all of those uh marches in the streets and pushing back through letter campaigns and Mm -hmm. contacting our officials it really worked Mm. let's keep that up it's a lot to ask because people are exhausted people have jobs people have children people have lives yeah but we can do this and we should do this and there's a role for the public in 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 solving it Um, so come to the table Figure it out. Have have your hearts and compassion lead the way, and we will we will solve this. Um, so I guess that's the the bright light hope.
0: I love that it. I have. I love it. Thanks, Alexandra. Um, are you okay to have and off on the final two questions here? You betcha. Um. So our five for dinner question: dead or alive? Who are five people you'd want to have a meal with? And then I always kind of ask, like, would you want to have them individually or or together?
1: So do you want them like one by one and say why? Or do you want like Yeah, just love, all? I'd love
0: to hear who they are and you want to share why, that'd be great.
1: Okay. So, um, so I live in Vancouver. I live in a neighborhood called Kitsilano and Kitsilano is like a very, you know, cute little oh, yeah. community within Vancouver, right by the beach. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned before, I believe like neighborhoods have their own personalities. They're not just part of the cities. And in, in our neighborhood, it's actually named after an Indigenous uh, Squamish leader, uh, long passed away, named uh, August Kitsilano. And, you know, I, I can imagine what Kitsilano looked like before all these houses were built and mm. the, you know, the volleyball net was put up. But I would love to just actually go out on a on a trip with him and just hear his stories and hear how things work, you know, I write a little bit about this. I've written a few papers on, uh, Stanley park and Granville mm-hmm. Island and, you know, kind of what's been in Vancouver before what is created now. And to me, he would be the the person that I would love to just learn from, um, in terms of the past. So that's, that's one. Cool.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Kitts is a beautiful place. Love it.
1: Yeah. I feel very yeah. lucky to be there yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The next person that I was thinking of uh, is RBG. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Mm -hmm. uh, tough lady, tough as nails, tiny little woman, uh, former Supreme Court Justice of the U.S. Um, And I would love to talk to her just about law. Like, how do you (laughs) how do you tinker with arguments to have them be winnable, even where especially something like the constitution seems really challenging to deal with. So right mm. now I'm, I'm really engaged on this question of the right to housing and, and I feel like she would be an ideal person mm. to pick the brain of, to kind of figure out the nuances in a very nerdy, <laughs> nerdy yeah. way yeah, yeah, yeah. on how to work with it. So that would be number two. Yeah. Uh, by the way, all of these would be individual. <laughs> I would yeah. not want to have them all at the same table yeah. except maybe my last one, which I'll get to. Um, the third is Desmond Tutu. Yeah. Uh, so um you know just like I just want to hear him talk just like hear him talk about people um and and the goodness of people um and what what's possible in that way. Yeah. Um having seen the worst and then and then hopefully moving towards the best. Um another person is Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Um so fascinating view of the world. And again, one of those people I just love to hear talk Yeah, mostly about his own personal story, being somebody who had a, a disability and his brain was still so on fire. Um, so how to just like almost survive when you're limited. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. And then the last person is my mom. Uh, who passed away three years ago i just Mm. love to have dinner with her again and hang out with her and yeah i I was always so curious about what she would think of all the things that are going on so just to share with her like what's happened and what does she think and then just you know kind of hear a few more a few more stories from her
0: yeah yeah Yeah. uh very interesting with that's amazing by the way what an amazing five and for sure individual conversations i could also see a really interesting group conversation develop into amongst those five as well uh rbg uh so crazy like you know the the spectrum that she kind of was championing and then she passes away and then who they replace her with right like just like uh you know she had that the person i forget what what's the justice's name that they replaced her with
1: um oh my gosh it's too early yeah. Can't it's okay. Anyways,
0: anyways, <laughs> like she has obviously she had a, she had an incredible resume representing a different sort of spectrum of of politics and thinking, but like just the the complete opposite, right, like from R B G.
1: Totally. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Such a shame. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I I'm sure she tried to. I imagine she probably would have wanted to hang on for as long as possible, right? So, she really tried. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. My goodness. Yeah. All that weightlifting, you know at age 90 or however old she was like what a trooper
0: yeah yeah um last question besides the circle of life what do you know for sure
1: okay so this might be controversial but okay
0: i I want to hear controversy sometimes
1: i believe that you really can't go wrong with poutine like in terms Mm. of making it like it's really hard to screw up a poutine um and this is partly where i grew up like in nunavut There was a place called The Snack that made very innovative poutine. Uh, They would put like random vegetables, you know, whatever was available in the kitchen. Delicious, delicious stuff. Plain with toppings, with ketchup. Doesn't matter. I think it's hard to go wrong.
0: Okay. Well, maybe I'll add to that because I can't have dairy. So have you ever had dairy-free poutine?
1: I have. I have. You have.
0: And you're okay with that?
1: I am. I mean, like... Listen, there are some really good faux cheeses out there. Yeah, there are. And, you know, when they're covered in a miso gravy, you know, you're going to be fine.
0: I think any listeners from Quebec are just tuned off now. What do you
1: think? Yeah, That's it. You've lost your Quebec (laughs) listeners. I've I've lost
0: my Quebec (laughs) listeners. Oh, great. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. That's all right. I'll just cut this part of the the episode off. Yeah, chop it off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it was this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was really great to see you again. Um, I think you, I think you, um, cleared up some things for folks that they probably thought were were true or what they were, uh, were they were listening to, and really got us to focus on. Hey, these are um, there's some incredible needs out there, and we have the ability to do something. Amazing, and now is the time for us to really galvanize some major efforts, starting at the national level and trickling all its weights down to the municipal level. So, um, really appreciate you um, bring clarity to the conversation, and always happy to have you back at another time. And uh, yeah, thanks for spending your, your Sunday morning. Hopefully, you had some coffee before you, you joined us here. So,
1: before entering, so perfect. yeah, that's what perfect. I love. Th- yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a Thank- real delight, actually. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks so much. And stick around. I just want to make sure we get a pure upload here. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you at the next episode. Bye.